Chapter 16, Initium Finus. It was happening. It is happening now. Just like I knew it would. Just like I told them. They should have listened. When I woke up, the first thing I heard was the distinct beeping of three heart monitors. Where was I? I had no idea where I was, or how I'd even gotten there in the first place. Or how long I had been there. I blinked, eyes bleary as they adjusted to the strange white fluorescent light that shone across the plain white ceiling above me. I turned my eyes downward, looking down at myself. I was lying on a hospital bed, and I wore a hospital gown. The environment around me smelled sterile, and the air was cold. Finally, the individual pieces were coming together now. I was in the small hospital ward in Professor's laboratory in the basement. I hadn't been down here in years. What was I doing down here? Turning my head slightly, I saw a heart monitor next to my bed. The red line flashed across it with each beep. It beeped slower than the heartbeat I used to have, the pace of my heart was slower once again. Another wave of remembrance hit me, the confusing, chaotic battle of illusions with him, and beforehand, the use of the emergency chemical X shots. The way the pace of my heart had sprinted after using it, the supercharged chemical singing in my veins like dynamite. The emergency shot I had taken had long worn off by now, and it was once more like the heartbeat of a human's heart. Then I had rushed here, to our childhood home, to tell him about the way the shots had worn off, the mental image of seeing Buttercup on the concrete ground, after falling straight out of the sky by no choice of her own, flashed in my mind. Then Brick and I went upstairs, and... I couldn't remember anything after that. I wondered what time it was. The small bit of space around my bed was surrounded by a tall white curtain, floor to ceiling, and there was no natural light coming in. There was no way to tell what time of day it was. Or what time of night. Because clearly, I had fallen asleep. And I didn't know how or why I'd fallen asleep before getting back to my dorm room, let alone how long I had been out. Inhaling, immediately I realized that there were oxygen tubes in my nose. Alarmed, I began to sit up. A hand stopped me, and I jumped. A deep, soothing voice said to me, No, don't get up. Brick. I turned my head. He was sitting in a chair next to my bed, looking down at me with scared, tired eyes. I hadn't seen him there. His hand tightened on my shoulder. Stay here. You're too weak. Professor needs to examine you more. I stared at him. What happened? I asked. When I spoke, my voice sounded brittle, and it led me to believe that I had been out for much longer than I'd thought. He still held on to my shoulder, but his grip loosened slightly. Your nose started bleeding chemical X, and then you collapsed. I brought you here while you were passed out. You've been out for a while. I didn't remember that at all. My nose had bled chemical X. How? And why? That had never happened to me before. I started to nod at my fear at something being wrong confirmed, and then with a wince, I stopped. My head. Hurts. With a pause, something occurred to me, and I jumped to ask, where are Bubbles and Buttercup? Are they okay? Brick looked down at me in a way that told me he was trying very hard to stay calm. No, baby. They're not. They collapsed, like you did. Oh no. No. I started getting up again, my head swimming, 
He didn't stop me this time. My heart rate increased, making the heart monitor beep recklessly. I have to go see them. As I yanked the covers off of my body, I noticed that there was an four in my arm. I stopped. Slowly, I looked at my bedside again, and for the first time noticed a drip. The bag had black liquid inside of it, and a tube from it ran down and into my right arm, where it was taped down tightly. My eyes turned to Brick again, wary, and I asked him, what is this? I knew what it was, of course. It went without saying that I was actually asking what it was doing in my arm. My boyfriend's mouth worked for a few drawn-out moments, looking like he was trying to find the right words to say. He was never afraid to be frank with me, even in the worst of situations. Seeing his hesitation scared me. Blossom, Brick said finally, his face looking strained. His voice sounded that way, too. Things have gotten worse. You're not well. None of us are. The weight and sheer size of his words descended on me all at once, like a shower of boulders raining down on my head. At that very moment, I knew that things were bad. Very bad. In almost the same way that I could instinctively feel crimes happening when I still had my powers, I could feel the negative energy of what was to come looming and surrounding us in that room like heavy storm clouds. It throbbed like a living thing, ominous and hopeless. I stared at Brick for a long few seconds, seconds that felt like minutes, trying to find my voice. Finding it, I asked, what do you mean? My voice was quiet. What's wrong with us? He looked away, turning his gaze straight to the floor and swallowing hard. I'm sorry, I can't say anything. Professor made me promise not to tell you. He has to tell you. Where is he? I asked immediately, gripping the sides of my bed to start to get up again. Brick stood up from his chair, gesturing for me to stay lying down. No, stay there. Rest. I'll get him. He began to walk towards the curtain that surrounded my bed. Just as he was leaving through it, he looked back at me one more time, anxiety in his eyes. He didn't smile. After he disappeared through the curtain, I heard the creak of a door opening, then shutting again. I sat very still, listening to my surroundings. I heard the sound of soft breathing somewhere beyond the curtain to my left, or was it two people breathing? And then breathing far across the room. It was clear that I wasn't alone in the hospital ward, and it was clear that my sisters were in hospital beds too, but it was also clear that I was the only one that had woken up so far. Despite the rolling ache in my head, I started to scoot up in my bed. The movement jarred my head, and it ached to the point of nearly stinging, but I had to prop my back up against the pillow behind me. It helped me feel less like a dead fish, just lying there. Almost right after I had finished struggling to sit up, all the while huffing and puffing, there was the sound of the door to the hospital ward opening up again. My curtain opened, and Professor came over to me, Brick following closely after him. Professor looked like he had barely gotten any rest, dark circles under his bloodshot eyes. His face was calm, but there was something else boiling just underneath that calmness that I couldn't place. He gazed down at me for a moment, just examining me. Then he asked, How are you feeling, sweetheart? Head hurts, I said in a soft voice. And I feel pretty weak. I glanced over at Brick, who had come to stand by my bed again. He remained silent, just stared down at me with the same quiet anxiousness on his face. 
Professor nodded, lips pressed together tightly. As I expected. Even knowing the answer, but feeling the need to ask anyway, I asked, have Bubbles and Buttercup woken up yet? Professor shook his head. No. Then he turned briskly, continuing over his shoulder, but I'm going to wake them for this. This is important, and I would rather have all of you hear this at once. He glanced at Brick. Help me open the curtains, please? Wordlessly, Brick detached from my bedside, leaving through the curtains around my bed and then immediately drawing them back. Through my renewed view, I saw the professor opening the curtains which surrounded Bubbles' hospital bed across the large room. Boomer was next to her bed in a chair, stirring awake from slumber in his uncomfortable upward position. Then, to my left, I saw Brick opening the curtains surrounding Buttercup's bed. Next to her bedside was a pallid butch, wide awake, with torment in his eyes. Gently, the professor woke each of my sisters. Bubbles woke quietly, confusion and slight fear on her face. Buttercup woke up groaning and complaining about her head aching. Bubbles' bed was wheeled over to the side of the room that Buttercup and I were in, and then Professor pulled up a chair, adjusting it so that it openly faced all three of our beds. Professor turned to the boys and asked them calmly, Could you boys please step out of the room for ten minutes or so while I tell them? I need this moment alone with my girls. None of them argued. After one more look at each of us, all three of them left, closing the door behind them. A beat of silence went by as I exchanged questioning and apprehensive glances with my sisters. Professor then sat heavily on his chair. Well, he paused, a wistful look on his face, there's no need to put this off any longer. The sooner you girls know what is happening, the better. My sisters were quiet. I shifted in discomfort, my head throbbing in answer. Okay, Professor. He looked over at me, and I looked him in the eye, courageous only because I had to be. We're ready. After a succinct nod, the professor took in a deep breath and began. Blossom, you already know this. Bubbles, Buttercup, you lost consciousness hours ago. After your noses started to bleed chemical X. Shock rippled. Buttercup spoke first. What? Your noses did not bleed blood, but chemical X alone. Professor looked at her evenly. And then you blacked out. Butch brought you here immediately after it happened. Her turned his gaze to our blonde sister. And likewise, Bubbles, Boomer brought you here. Bubbles was staring at him, quiet, face pale, eyes wide in her face. It seemed like she couldn't say anything at all. Buttercup launched right into a demand. Tell us what happened to us. Professor looked down at his lap, hands fiddling. He cut straight to the chase. I'd done some analyses of you girls while you were unconscious. And what I found was, not what I expected. He paused heavily. When I made the emergency supercharged chemical X shots, well, they were as close to perfect as I could make them. But there was one thing I didn't consider. I didn't consider how the shots would fade out of your systems, and how the already faded chemical X would react to the supercharged chemical X. He stopped again, shaking his head. I was in such a rush to make them perfect that I wasn't thinking about what their possible consequences would be. That was my mistake. How did it react? I prompted him. Dread was starting to boil in my stomach. Badly. 
Professor sighed, bringing a hand to rub harshly against his forehead, then his temple. Very badly. My stomach heaved, then clenched. All three of us stared at him in horror, waiting for him to continue on his own because we were afraid to ask anything more. Far off in the distance, there was the sound of a siren, an ambulance siren. It wailed, growing louder, louder still, then began to fade as it continued its journey beyond our street. The basement became quiet once more, so quiet that the slightest shift seemed loud. Finally, the professor went on. The supercharged chemical seems to have accelerated the degradation process. The shots worked as they were supposed to at first. But the shot burned so quickly in your systems that what was left of the structure of the original chemical X in your bloodstreams is, well. He stopped for so long this time that I was afraid that he wasn't going to continue. But something worse happened. He did continue. It's falling apart. Falling apart? My voice shook as I echoed him. He nodded. Slowly. That's what was going to happen eventually. When your power started to fade, I had suspected that things would lead to this. I had hoped so strongly that it wouldn't, but. He trailed off, adjusting his glasses, and swallowing hard. The previous sentence went unfinished as he started another one. And so as I developed the emergency shot, I continued researching. Because I knew that beyond the chemical falling apart, things would get even worse. Things would be unfixable. Buttercup blurted, her voice burning, what do you mean, unfixable? The confusion had long left her face. And an unstable fear had taken the place of it. Bubbles remained silent, terrified. Professor paused, then turned wide, sad eyes to her. He looked miserable and scared. More than the day that he had told us about our powers going away. Seeing him, our rock, our creator, be so fearful and vulnerable, almost like a lost child, was probably the most terrifying thing that I had ever seen. His voice quiet, he said, I thought the vitamins and shots would help it last longer. I've been looking endlessly for a permanent solution, I've been searching everywhere. I was hoping those would extend things, give me more time. I thought I would have more time. His voice trailed off when his tone had taken an uncharacteristically panicked turn. He leaned forward in his chair, resting his elbows on his knees and bringing his face down into his open hands. For about a minute, the three of us watched him try to calm his breathing. On my blonde sister, I saw her breathing the way that she did when she tried to keep from crying, her brow furrowed, lips wobbling, and her eyes wide. My brunette sister was untethered, trembling with horror. Each of us had figured out what was coming. But we still needed to hear it ourselves, to hear it confirmed. My voice was only a whisper. Professor? Painstakingly, the professor finally lifted his face from his hands. Even slower, he raised his vulnerable, red-rimmed gaze to mine. After taking in a shaking breath, he spoke clearly. Girls, I wish that there was something else that I could do. There may be, and I'm going to give it all I've got to find whatever that is, with whatever time we have left. But no matter what, you have to know that I'm sorry. He looked at each of us, one by one, sad brown eyes meeting ours. None of us answered. Cautiously, I squeezed shut, he continued. Over time, over years, the chemical X in your bloodstream has been, consuming your regular blood. Bit by bit. Replacing it. 
so gradually that the total loss of blood was unnoticeable until now. And now. He opened his eyes again. They were full of darkness. Now it's falling apart. Just like the cloned chemical in those monsters all those months ago, it's not just losing potency. It's destroying itself. And once your chemical X sputters out completely. There was a very long pause. It was the merciful moment of ceasefire, before he delivered the crushing blow. Your chemical X is the only thing that has been keeping you alive. And once it goes out, you will die. Professor had long left the room. My sisters and I sat up on our hard, uncomfortable hospital beds in desolate, empty silence. The silence stretched on and on, with none of us able to even say a word, let alone look each other in the eye. Because if we saw each other's unguarded, raw pain, that would make what we just heard real. Because that was just it. This didn't feel real. Not yet. I couldn't comprehend the words I'd heard the professor say. They couldn't possibly be true. It felt like some horrible nightmare. I prayed that I would wake at any moment. There was no way this was real. He wouldn't let this happen. Professor always had a solution for everything. Always had some invention, some insight, bringing in a miracle at the last minute. He always did. He did for battles, for school projects that we ran into problems with, for attempts at making a meal that had gone sour in some way. He always knew how to fix things. I thought he could fix anything, prevent anything. Even death. So much that it, in all honesty, had never seemed like something I would ever have to dread. But he was only human, after all. I could feel it coming back. Like an old familiar friend, there it was, dark and thick and viscous inside of me, rising up and consuming me for the first time in years, bubbling up and filling my veins and the orifices between my organs and bones and muscles and making them all impossibly heavy. Only this time I knew that it was more unrelenting than it had ever been before taking a form so bitter and malicious that it sucked everything else out of me. Like a shadowy part of my past, depression began to make its way back to me, wrapping its arms and legs around me and tying weights to my feet. Heavy, thick, cold, beckoning me to sleep forever. It was coming. And I couldn't stop it. My chest felt so heavy that I thought I wouldn't be able to speak. But after quite some time of silence, somewhere inside of me, I found the words, and my mouth opened, and I said them. You know I would do anything for the both of. You, I lifted my gaze slowly, then looked, between my sisters. Neither of them looked at me. I finished, right? No response. They only stared sightlessly, grief spread all over their faces. I continued on, even knowing I still wouldn't get an answer. My voice was brittle, and it came out as a mere whisper this time. I would trade my soul for the both of you to live. As I watched, I saw Bubbles' bottom lip quiver. But still she said nothing. She didn't even cry. Just sat with her eyes closed, face screwed up in pain. When I was least expecting a reply, Buttercup's empty voice came, stating simply, no point. I turned my eyes to gaze at her. Her face was blank, the grief gone. Just slate clean, the way that her face looked just before a battle. I recognized it. It was the way she cleared her expression of any emotion at all, to keep enemies from being able to read her. I also saw it one time. The time that Butch broke her heart, 
And there, in that moment, that's how I knew, there was a storm ahead. A hurricane of proportions we had never known before. Perhaps the last storm we would ever know. I awoke on the cold tiles of my makeshift underground lair. Vision blurry, I blinked, then I blinked again. Around me, I heard the sounds of my machinery and computers running, but the sound of them dragged thickly like they were coming to me, through long tunnels. My head throbbed sharply, like explosions of thunder inside of my skull. It was another blasted headache. Only this time I had passed out. How long had I been unconscious, just lying here on the floor? What had caused the unconsciousness in the first place? I reached up to my head with one long clawed hand, willing the throbbing to go away on its own. I've been getting them for nearly a month and a half now. Nothing except limiting my movement and sleeping would help them, and they always came back. But I'd never fainted like this before. Just as I began to sit up, my hand still glued to my forehead, I felt something leak from my nose. I glanced down, irritated. Then I noticed some peculiar spots of black on my shirt. I frowned, squinting down at them. I couldn't place what they were at first. I felt more leaking out of both sides of my nose. I touched my hand to my upper lip, drawing it back after a moment to peer at it. Black liquid, all over my hand. Dripping out of my nose and off of my face. An abrupt, fierce wave of nausea hit me out of nowhere, and quickly, I sat up further, scrambling over to the nearby trash bucket. I barely made it in time before the vomit came up and out of me as I squeezed my eyes shut. When I was finished, reluctantly, I opened my eyes. At what I saw before me, uncontrollably, I began to tremble. Peering down into the waste bucket, I saw it. Black liquid. Blacker than midnight. All over the inside of the bucket, dripping down my chin. Blackness. Nothing but blackness. Chapter 17, Red Do Parody How do you live when the days that you have left have an exact, precise, cruel number? I didn't know how it was possible, but things had actually gotten worse. I thought that losing my powers would be the worst thing to happen to me. I thought it would be something that I could emotionally never move past, something that I could maybe arrange my life around but would always think about when I was alone in bed at night and nothing could keep the creeping misery away. I thought it would be like a phantom limb that was inside of my body somewhere, something that didn't exist anymore but still felt so vital for me to use that there would always be a certain emptiness in my everyday activities. The part of my soul that yearned to feel the air whistling through my hair, whipping past my skin-like fingers lifting me higher into the air, feeling the biting wisps of clouds evaporate against me, perhaps it would have always felt unfulfilled and sad. But there could have been ways around it that I would have been willing to do. Almost. There were many human equivalents of flying. Skydiving. Bungee jumping. Cliff jumping. All ways of falling through the sky. They seemed so close to the real thing. Maybe it wouldn't have been quite enough. But it would have been something that I could do. And when the emergency shots were still a possibility, of course I knew they wouldn't be permanent. But I still could have lived a tiny piece of my existence from before, in short little increments once in a while. And maybe that would have been okay, not quite enough, but just enough to get by. Just enough to survive. I was just learning to be mostly human. I was just learning to work around the physical inconveniences that humans always dealt with. 
I didn't like it, but I was doing it. I could have become better at it with time. And now it would all be pointless. I was dying. My dazed shock had finally worn off after a couple of days, and once it left, I found myself wishing that it would come back. That it would come back and shield me with its cold numb walls. The knowledge of what was happening to my sisters and I hung over my head like a phantom at all times, watching my every move, surrounding my consciousness, filling my every breath with the understanding that I only had a certain amount of time left to keep breathing. A few days had passed, and yet I still hoped I would wake up from this nightmare. My sisters and I stayed home from school every day to stay under professor's close observation. We didn't leave the house either. As for the boys, they reluctantly went to classes daily after all three of us, and the professor, as well, implored them to carry on with their studies. After their respective days of classes were finished, though, they drove over to our house immediately and stayed with us overnight instead of at their dorms. To stay occupied during the day, I stayed constantly busy. I kept every inch of the house clean, scrubbing and vacuuming and mopping every chance I got, the moment it started to look less than perfectly spotless. At one point during one late afternoon, I became frustrated with how the mop seemed to not get the kitchen floor clean enough so I got on my hands and knees with a bucket of soapy water, gloves and a sponge and scrubbed it myself. Scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed until every single scuff and spot was gone. After an hour or two, distantly, I felt Brick standing in the kitchen doorway, watching me with concern, and telling me to take a break. I ignored him. I kept scrubbing. When I took my rubber gloves off after I finished, my hands were calloused and cracked, bleeding black. I only stared down at them, unfeeling, waiting for them to heal themselves instantly as my wounds had for my whole life. They didn't. They didn't heal at all. Another day, when I had taken a break from cleaning and I didn't have my face buried in one of my multiple books from my bedroom bookshelves, Brick and I sat on my bed, talking. Our backs rested, propped up against my headboard, our legs stretched out the length of my bedspread. At first, we talked about unimportant things. The weather. Whatever was coming on television that night. Even some upcoming movies we wanted to see. Anything to distract us from talking about what was happening to us. Then, out of the blue, Brick broke our unspoken rule of avoidance. I had a nosebleed this morning. The forced smile on my face dropped away immediately. Nausea rose in my throat. I asked to confirm, a chemical X nosebleed? I looked over at him in time, to see him nod, slowly, his lips pinched. My throat went dry as I stared at him. He continued, voice grim. Boomer had one yesterday, in class. We're waiting on Butch, to have one next. I looked away from him silently, not trusting if I could hold it together if I said anything in reply. I felt him staring at me. Professor gave me a drip. I'm okay now. Swallowing hard, I managed a nod. Then, with a quiet voice, I corrected, for now. At that, Brick stayed silent, too. With one of my bandaged hands, I reached across my soft, plushy bedspread, taking his hand in mine. Then I leaned my head against his shoulder. We didn't say anything more to each other, just sat in my quiet, cold bedroom. Yes, hello, may I please talk to someone in the registry department? Over the phone, my voice rang out more confident-sounding than it had in nearly a week. 
the person on the other end of my university's official office line told me to hold. They probably never even suspected that something might be wrong. I had put it off long enough. There was no use putting it off any longer. It was time. A chipper voice greeted me on the other end of the line after a few nerve-wracking minutes of listening to classical hold music passed. Hi, this is Katie from Warner University's registry office, how may I help you today? I forced myself to smile. If I smiled, then she would hear me smiling, and then she couldn't hear the grief that was crawling its way up the back of my throat. Hi, Katie. This is Blossom Utonium. I need to request an emergency academic leave of absence for my sisters and I. There was a moment of pause when I heard some papers shuffling in the background. Okay, I can do that for you. What is the reason for this leave? My throat tightened. I kept the forced phony smile on my face. Medical reasons. This gave her true pause. Even without seeing her face, I could tell I had caught her off guard. She had, of course, known who I was just from my name. I stiffened, anticipating any questions she might throw at me, my press mode in full effect even though she wasn't a press member at all. Finally, she said politely, I'm very sorry to hear that. I let out a breath of relief at her generosity. She continued, her professional aura intact. It looks like all three of you qualify for a leave, you're all in good standing based on last semester's grades. And you're just making the cutoff for leave requests. Can I ask how long this leave might be? My breath hitched. Somehow, I hadn't given this any thought at all. Why hadn't I realized I would need to give them an approximate amount of time the leave would be? The dark thought arose from the very back of my mind, before I could stop it, how long would it take for us to die? The single dangerous thought overwhelmed me so severely that I lost my voice. Hello? The kind voice at the other end rang out after a few long moments. Blossom, are you still there? Breaking through my fog, I forced out, yes, I'm sorry. I was just thinking. I swallowed hard, a response finally leaping from my rational mind. The leave will be one semester. One semester. The rest of January, February, March, April, May. Five months. By then, we could most certainly be dead. And the news would get out about it, spread to every corner of the world, and the university would know that we would never be coming back. That we would never be going back to school again. Every grade we ever got, every essay we ever did, all for nothing with no graduation, they'd be sealed up in a tune with us, along with the rest of the things we would never finish or accomplish. I squeezed my eyes shut as Katie described to me which forms I would have to print out on the university's website for my sisters and I, fill them out, and bring them to the main office to get signed by an advisor. Then it would be done, and we'd be university students no longer. I answered her in affirmation, and then we hung up. Then my cell slipped from my hand, rattling against the wood surface of the dining room table as IT collapsed into my folded arms. The uncontrollable sobs rose out of me before I could quell them or suppress them. The dining room echoed with my hysterical sobbing. The next day, sitting down heavily in the passenger seat of Brick's parked burgundy car, I slammed the door shut after I settled inside. I closed my eyes and leaned my head back against the leather seat. Well, I said to him after a few moments, where he had been waiting for me in the driver's seat. My voice was bleak. It's done.
His voice was quiet. You did what you had to do. I drew in a breath, then exhaled, for a long time. You mean what I was forced to do? Getting those forms signed in my university's main office, then turning them in and setting them free, had been one of the most difficult things I'd ever had to do. And as a leader, I had done plenty of things that were hard before, so that was saying something. Brick was silent for a moment. Then I heard him lean over in his seat, and then afterwards, felt his lips pressed to my forehead. The scent of his aftershave drifted to my nose. Comforting. After he pulled away, he said, let's go somewhere else. Finally, reluctantly, I opened my eyes. I had been trying to block out the sight of my beloved campus, the campus that I would never set foot on ever again. Goodbyes were never my strongest suit. Professor said to come back home after dropping off the forms, I reminded him, frowning. Yes he did, Brick allowed, turning the key, and starting the car's engine again. But he also didn't say we couldn't stop for ice cream afterwards. Unable to help it, one corner of my mouth quivered upward. Brick. He looked at me, ruby eyes round and innocent. Bloss? It's 34 degrees outside, I told him, lifting my hand and pointing at the small thermometer on his dashboard. Fahrenheit. So? He shifted from park to reverse. His feigned deliberate ignorance choked a chuckle out of me. It made me feel a little better. So, it's too cold for ice cream. Brick scoffed, starting to pull out of the parking space we'd been stalled in. Says who? Killjoys? Or belly acres? Sourpusses? Faultfinders? He shot a quick playful look at me, before his eyes locked on the rearview mirror again. Maybe you're a faultfinder, he said to me. This time, a genuine laugh bubbled out of me. The knot in my stomach loosened further. Okay, okay, I relented. Stop using words from yesteryear. Curmudgeon, he added quickly. I snorted, restraining another laugh. I folded my arms. Fine. Let's get ice cream. We left the parking lot for the main office, and then we left the campus. I restrained the urge to look back at it. His face lit up with a big grin at my response, then reached to grab my hand with his free one, keeping one hand firmly on the steering wheel. That's the spirit. Although I wasn't particularly hungry, I appreciated the distraction. He knew I needed this, and that's why he was doing it. Distracting us both from the despair hanging over our heads. We both needed it, in truth. We needed to do something fun, even if it was small. As we drove away, I closed my eyes again, squeezing his hand tightly with mine. I leaned over the selections of ice cream flavors on the other side of the glass, considering each flavor slowly and carefully. My gloved hands pressed against the clear barrier. The family-owned ice cream shop, Pop's Ice Cream and Gelato, was basically deserted, the opposite of how I was sure it would look on a blistering summer day. The only person here besides us was the lone teenage girl running the cash register, who dolefully had looked up from her phone screen when we had walked in, along with a less-than-enthusiastic obligatory customer greeting. Brick, coming over to me from the other end of the display of flavors, came up behind me, close enough that his breath stirred the strands of hair that hung in my face as he talked. Did you look at the gelato? Not yet, I answered him, my eyes switching between the bubblegum flavor and the strawberry shortcake flavor.
I was looking at these flavors first. Do they have a lot of it? Yeah. Gently, he pushed the hair that hung in my face behind my ear. You should come see. He took my hand. Hands connected, we went over to the opposite end of the flavor displays, where all of their gelato selections were. They had so many good-sounding flavors, dark chocolate, raspberry, hazelnut, peach, tiramisu, and a few more. As my eyes darted over them eagerly, taking in the extra creamy, delicious-looking concoctions, a thought occurred to me. I asked Brick, turning to look at him, wait, isn't gelato more expensive than regular ice cream? Ours is, the girl behind the counter, butted in, acknowledging us, for the first time, since we'd come in. She eyed me with a glazed-over disinterest, popping her chewing gum. Ours is homemade with exported ingredients. It's okay, Brick told me immediately, giving me an encouraging look. It doesn't matter. Pick whichever kind you want, and I'll get it for you. Smiling up at him and squeezing his hand gratefully again, I turned back to the numerous flavors, to make the nearly torturous decision of deciding on one. We sat at a table in the corner of the shop, deciding to stay inside to eat our cold treats instead of eating them out in the cold car. I had finally decided on the raspberry gelato in a bowl, and Brick had gotten the dark chocolate gelato in a cone. The girl behind the counter went blissfully back to whatever she had been doing on her phone before we'd come in, once when I took a glance at her, I saw her posing and taking a picture of herself with her phone's camera. Brick and I ate and enjoyed each other's company in the nearly quiet space. The only sounds came from the counter girl, the scraping of my plastic spoon against my plastic bowl, and the low adult contemporary music that came from overhead speakers. Then, maybe 15 minutes after we had sat down, some unexpected company came in, disrupting the quiet. A little girl with a curly dark ponytail and a bright yellow winter coat and her mother entered the shop, making the bell above the door ring with their entrance. The girl behind the counter rolled her eyes and put her phone down again. Welcome to Pop's Ice Cream and Gelato, she droned automatically. Hi. The little girl said back to her, grinning a gap-toothed grin. I wanted an ice cream cone even though it's cold outside, and my mommy said yes. Her mom smiled at the counter girl in chagrin. She's very excited to try some ice cream from this place, we've never been here before. The teenager nodded back at her in polite phony interest, seeming like she couldn't care less. Brick and I exchanged a look of amusement across the table at each other. The little girl turned around, probably to see if there was anyone else there in the shop, and she spotted us at the table. Cheeks rosy, she gasped in delight. Mommy, look. The Powerpuff Girl and Powerpuff Boy are here. They're eating ice cream when it's cold, too. Look, look. Caught off guard, Brick and I flinched at the sudden recognition. We exchanged another look, mine in surprise, Brick's in embarrassment, probably at being called a Powerpuff Boy. The mother grabbed her daughter's hand, keeping her from coming charging over to us in her excitement. She stared at us too, but an apology. I'm so sorry, she said, then she looked down at her daughter, sternly. Now, sweetie, leave them alone. Just because they're superheroes, it doesn't mean they don't want to be treated normally. They deserve their privacy. I smiled at the little girl warmly, then at the mother. It's all right, don't worry about it. We don't mind. The little one was still staring at me very intently, the gap between her two front teeth on full display.
Then, abruptly, her smile faded. She frowned in what looked like concern, her eyes wide. Mommy, she started, her voice softer, what's wrong with the Powerpuff Girl's face? A jolt of hurt went through me, then confusion. What was she talking about? The mother gasped in horror at what her daughter had said to me. Shelby, she began to scold her. She looked up at me, probably to apologize, then she froze. Her free hand came up to cover her mouth. Oh dear, she said. Bloss, Brick said suddenly, getting up from the table. When I looked over at him, he was staring at me, too. In fear. Let's go. Now. I looked up at him, alarmed. Why, the sensation of something dripping onto my bottom lip interrupted me. Quickly, I brought my fingers to my lips, then drew them back. Black liquid. I froze, staring down at it on my hand and saying nothing, fear beginning to surface inside of me. This hadn't happened to me in public before, and now it was happening in plain sight. With witnesses. Brick, his hand suddenly completely free of his gelato, came over to my side quickly. Let's get you home. Come on. His arm hooked around my back underneath my arms, drawing me up and out of the cold metal chair. He turned me away from our small audience, hurriedly ushering me out of the door. Just above the ringing of the bell announcing our leave, I heard the disturbed voice of the counter girl saying to the mother and daughter, Did you see that? I still felt the gazes of the mother, little girl, and even the counter girl on us through the front windows as we rushed through the cold, got into the car, and tore away from there. Pulling the ends of my sleeves down over the tips of my fingers, I pushed out of the back door. The frigid late January air greeted me with an icy smack to the exposed skin of my face. Throwing a glance behind me to make sure no one had followed me, I pulled the door shut behind me. It was noon, and the sun was high in the sky, but it did nothing to dispel the frigid cold. The white light it provided only kept it from feeling like night. Eagerly, I freed my fingers from their sleep prisons, exposing them to the freezing air, but not caring. I reached into the pocket of my sweatpants, tugging out the box of cigarettes that was inside. Next, I reached into the other pocket for my lime green lighter. Smoking was not something I had always done. I had only taken it up a few weeks earlier, when the tormented thoughts of losing my powers had become too much for me. I needed a release. When the professor had broken the bad news to us a week ago, though, it became more than just a habit for me. I needed the soothing burning in my lungs. The rush that it gave me throughout my body kept me sane. It kept me feeling like I wasn't totally losing my mind. And most importantly, it kept my mind off the things I didn't want to acknowledge. It helped me escape just for a little while from the weight of my impending tragedy. And at least if I had lost control of nearly every aspect of my life, this was maybe the last thing I had control of. It was one of the last things that felt like it was truly mine. I held the end of a fresh cigarette between my lips, then flicked on my lighter, shielding the tiny flame with my free hand from the cold breeze. The other end of the small stick lit up, and a corner of my mouth twitched up in quiet satisfaction. As it began to burn, I took a slow, savoring drag. Hold it. Felt the warmth spread throughout my body. The anger and tension inside of me released. With a sigh of relief, I blew out the smoke. It floated up and away from me. 
I did this again, then again, standing and staring out at the quiet backyard. Glancing to the left, at our neighbor's backyard, the Smiths, for a fleeting moment, I wondered how Crystal slash Julie was doing at her fancy Cityville College. We hadn't heard from her, Amy, or Victoria, in months. I guessed some distancing between high school friends was common after starting college. I wondered if the Smith parents still hated us. Probably. They'd probably hate us until they lived in a senior home, and maybe after that, too. I blew smoke out with a silent, humorless chuckle. It wasn't until a few minutes later that my sweet silence was rudely interrupted with a voice. I knew I'd been smelling nicotine on you lately. I whirled, facing my intruder. Butch was leaning against the wall, next to the back door, arms folded, face blank except for subdued amusement in his eyes. He'd been so quiet. How long had he been standing there? I appraised him with a scorn that I couldn't seem to help. How the hell did you know I was back here? Since you've been acting all suspicious and sneaking away at random intervals during the day, I decided to follow you, he said simply. His eyebrows rose, disappearing behind his raven hair. Hello, by the way. Realizing I was glaring at him, I forced my expression to lighten. With a sigh, I cleared my throat. Sorry. You just surprised me. I had been somewhat avoiding him lately. Maybe because of his first chemical X nosebleed a few days. Earlier. I hadn't been trying to avoid him on purpose, really. It was just that the unsettled fear I got when I looked at him now made it hard to forget what was happening to me. To all of us. Butch remained against the wall, and his eyes slid down to the cigarette between my fingers. He nodded at it. You don't seem like you're new at that. You handle it like a pro. Sheepish, I shook my head. I just started this month. I lifted an eyebrow. You're not gonna blab, are you? He shook his head. I know you don't want me to say it, but, he paused, unfolding his arms and putting his hands into his hoodie pockets, you're probably not exactly in the best shape to be doing that right now. I blinked at him, then turned back around to face the open backyard, shrugging. Guess not, I said. I brought the cig back to my lips, to punctuate the uncaring tone of my voice. There was a pause as I exhaled, then footsteps approaching me. Slowly, his arms wound around my shoulders, bringing my back flush against his warm body. I hadn't realized how badly I had needed his touch until that very moment, when I felt all the cords in my back relax. Sighing, I tilted my head back to rest against his collarbone. He leaned his face down, and understanding immediately what he was doing, I lifted my hand higher, so he could reach. His lips, closed around the end of the cigarette I held as he bummed it from me, and drew. He held it. Then he brought his hand gently to the underside of my jaw, cupping it, tilting my head back so his lips could meet mine. They opened, and the smoke drifted lazily between my open lips and into my mouth. His lips and the bitter, burning smoke, both of my vices mingled. My toes curled. Butch broke the kiss, drew from the cigarette again, then blew his smoke out just as I blew out the smoke he'd passed on to me. He looked down at me seriously, despite the dry smirk on his lips. Guess we're both screwed. A slight, dismal smile appeared briefly on my face. Closing my eyes, I tilted my head back to press a small, soft kiss on the exposed skin of his neck. Then, a dark smile, dropping away as quickly as it came, 
I turned my eyes back to the slate-gray sky. I took another drag, holding it for a long time, then releasing it. I'm cold, I said after a long silence. I turned my head slightly towards his, where his chin rested on my shoulder. Aren't you cold? He gave me a lifeless shrug. His eyes stared ahead, sightless. Doesn't matter, anyway. I'm always cold these days. A little extra cold doesn't make much difference. Slow, I nodded. I understood. I felt exactly the same way. Soon, after all three of the boys turned in their formal leave of absence to the University of Townsville and started staying home all the time, the cigarettes weren't enough for me anymore. The slow, sweet burn of their poison wasn't enough to heal me. I needed more. Do you know what the professor will do to me if he catches us? Butch whispered to me. He kept taking glances through the dark living room and up at the top of the stairs for any signs of movement. Buttercup, I wouldn't have to worry about this whole chemical X thing anymore. His wrath would be swift and merciless. He paused, then muttered, on second thought, maybe dying this way would be better. Ignoring most of what he said, including the super tactless joke, I rolled my eyes as I turned to face him, whispering back, we're in college. We can't be. Expected to just stay home all the time like some elementary schoolers. Besides, I would be the one he'd get mad at. Don't worry about it. A noise came suddenly, and we jumped to look at the source of it. Our mystery was immediately solved when a car's headlights passed through the front window and then faded away along with the sound of the car's engine. We both let go of the breath we'd been holding. Turning to me, he answered one of my arguments with a counterargument. Yeah, but it's midnight. I doubt that leaving in the middle of the day and leaving at midnight would be the same thing to your dad. A swift, sudden wave of annoyance and bitterness hit me at once. He's not my dad. What? He looked at me in confusion. What do you mean? I said curtly in a quiet voice, he's human. I'm not. He's not my father. Don't call him that. Keeping the hard, callous expression on my face, I turned back toward the front door. Now, come on. You said you wanted to make me happy. This will make me happy. And since you're so damn paranoid about getting caught sneaking out, let's just get out of here already. Wordlessly, he followed me as I quickly opened the door and walked into the frigid night. Settling into his car as he started the engine, I took a glance at him. He was frowning. Knowing that I couldn't ask him what he was making that face for without being questioned myself, I kept my mouth shut. The drive was silent. We exited the 24-hour liquor store, our purchases in a plastic bag, and sat back down in his car. Back in the darkness of the car, I pushed the hood of my sweatshirt back down, not needing it anymore, to hide my face to keep from being recognized. I glanced over at Butch in time to see him do the same with his coat hood. I reached down underneath my seat, grabbing the tall paper bags I'd stashed down there. I handed one to him, then grabbed the watermelon-flavored bottle of vodka Butch had bought with cash, along with an old fake ID he had used to buy booze back in his villain days. Taking the paper bag from me and taking out the bottle of whiskey he'd gotten for himself, he glanced up at me. There was a hesitant light in his eyes. Are you sure you want to do this? I rolled my eyes, putting my bottle into the paper bag and wrapping my hand around the neck of it, 
making the bag bunch underneath my fingers. Lighten up. It's just a drink. I'm not jumping off a bridge or something. He said nothing, just directed that same frown at me. I leveled a scowl at him, turning to open the car door again. If you're going to keep looking at me like that, I'm taking this outside. I sprang out into the cold night air again, then slammed the car door shut. I glanced around the parking lot. Still as empty as it was when we'd arrived here. The small liquor store was off of a quiet street that wasn't a main one, and barely any cars drove past. No cops either. Turning away, I hopped up on the neon green hood of Butch's car, sitting there with my legs folded up. Wrestling the top of the bottle open, I discarded the cap and then eagerly brought the bottle up to my lips, tipping my head back and taking the first blessed sip. It was at once tart and heady, with the taste of melon, and then biting and unpleasant. Then it went down so burning and delightful that I shuddered. Quickly, I took another sip. Savored it. Then I took a gulp. I felt the vibration when Butch opened the driver's door, then felt it slam as I heard it close. Take it easy. Don't want you to hurl on my paint job. I glanced over at where he stood beside the car. He had an unreadable look on his face this time. I blinked blankly at him, then turned my eyes away. Does it look like I care? I muttered. The air pulsed with the monotone bitterness of my words. A heavy three seconds passed. I took another sip. The liquid was beginning to take its hold on me, my stomach and chest began filling with sleepy, comforting heat, and I welcomed it. Finally, Butch's feet disconnected from the pavement, and he climbed up on the hood of his car, sitting next to me. In my peripheral vision, I saw him tip his concealed bottle back, taking a thick gulp of his whiskey. Another quiet few minutes passed. Then, in a low voice, he asked me, does watermelon-flavored vodka actually taste better? I sighed heavily. For some reason, more than anything else, I wished he would stop trying to talk to me. It does the job, I said, flatly. More than regular vodka would? There was a teasing tone in his voice. It irked me for some reason. Are you gonna keep asking me questions? A moment of silence passed, then Butch hm ed as if something about what I'd said had confirmed something for him. Well, seeing as you haven't been very chatty lately, I just thought I'd try to make some conversation. He still sounded light and playful. I took a big gulp this time. I gritted my teeth on its way down. Yeah, well, guess I'm not in the mood to talk. Why not? Butch tapped his fingers against the bottle he held. The question he asked next was loaded with implication. Is there something wrong? There it was. His tone was suddenly dark, knowing, and immediately I knew he'd been leading up to this question the entire time. And I strolled right into it. Unable to stop myself, I turned to stare at him, stone-faced. He was already bleakly staring at me, face straight with seriousness, deep emerald eyes, looking almost black in the dark. I uttered the one word, filling it with as much warning as I could. Don't. He held my gaze, almost like a challenge. Then, slowly, he set the paper-wrapped bottle down next to him and leaned back on his elbows against the hood of his car. Don't what? He used the same tone. The one that told me that I couldn't worm my way out of this discussion. I begged to differ. I would do anything to get out of this. Anything. 
Just shut up. Okay? My voice turned sharp as I turned away again. You're annoying the hell out of me right now. Just shut up and let me drink. Oh? I'm annoyed? I took another sip from the bottle. Yes, I choked out bluntly after I swallowed. So you don't want me around? His voice was getting sharper, too. I could feel his eyes boring into the side of my face. I didn't answer him. I refused to. Just kept my gaze locked on the surrounding empty parking spaces, jaw clenched. Maybe I could ignore him. Continue taking swigs from that bottle as I watch my life fall apart around me. In my peripheral vision, I saw him nod slowly and start to sit up from his reclined position. So I'm annoyed. All right. Too bad. I still felt his gaze on me, unrelenting. And what about you? The sudden question threw me off, and I actually looked back at him, startled. What? Don't think I haven't noticed how distant you've been. Do you think I'm stupid? Where have you been lately, huh? Where have you been going? He tapped his own head roughly with an outstretched finger, two impatient taps against his temple. You're not here. Where are you? Where the hell are you? Oh, fuck off. I turned away from him and tilted my head back, taking another long, bitter swig from the bottle. The burning flowed all the way down. Immediately afterwards, I began scooting off the hood of the car. My feet touched down on the dark pavement, legs buckling, and I began to walk. I had to move away from his proximity. It was starting to make me feel antsy, though I didn't really know why. My legs felt weak though, thanks to the booze, and walking straight was taking a concentrated effort. I heard Butch scramble off of the car hood too, and then his footsteps against the ground. Answer me. Buttercup, look at me. Hey, his hand enclosed on one of my hands, trying to get me to face him. It wasn't rough contact, but it was just enough to piss me off. I tore my hand away from his. I swear to God, Butch, don't touch me. My words were starting to slur and melt together. I stumbled to the side, my heel coming in crooked contact with the ground. Butch reached out to steady me, and I shoved his hands off my waist, turning to face him. I said, don't touch me. I shouted. He jerked back, wide eyes staring at me in disbelief. I had not yelled like that at him in ages, and with so much poison in my voice, when I did it. He squinted, not breaking his gaze. What are you doing lately? I swiveled away from his gaze again, avoiding it. I couldn't take the way he was looking at me. If I looked at him any longer, I would start to feel guilty, and I didn't want to be. What do you care about? I shot back at him after a few moments. The vodka curling through my mind made it difficult for me to think of a response at first. Butch sighed impatiently. Spare me this whole thing, buttercup, please. I looked back at him over my shoulder again, sneering. What the whole thing? Your whole, woe is me, no one cares about me act that you've started putting on with everyone else. He took another step toward me, scowl sharpening. It's not going to work with me, so cut the shit. His words had made a lightning bolt of shock course through me, giving me an uncomfortable smack of lucidity, through my dizzy days. I was snarling before I realized it, don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to you in what way? Like I'm your boyfriend? Through his glare, there was worry underneath. 
like I care about you? His last addition, along with the look on his face, made the lightning bolt strike me again, and I turned away once more, tilting the bottle back and taking another gulp to keep the feelings inside me dead. Aimless, I once again began walking away. Distantly, I heard Butch right on my heels. I didn't bother turning back around when he spoke this time. You've been snipping and keeping everyone at arm's length for the past two and a half weeks. Don't think I haven't noticed. Is this because you're hurting? I screeched to a quick halt at his question. I continued facing forward, reeling from the icy feeling that had crawled up my spine from what he'd said. I know this is hard for you. This is hard for all of us. I've avoided talking about it, like you wanted me to. But you can only avoid this for so long. There was fear in his voice. I whirled on him again, then quickly closed the distance of a foot between us. The glare on my face felt wild and flushed as I said, directly in his face, shut up. He stared down at me, tone rigid as he said, no. You need to hear this. And if no one else will tell you, then it will be me. His eyes were unyielding. Shaking my head, I snapped, I don't need to hear shit from you, Butch. Shut the fuck up. Breaking his unnatural calm, like a thin thread snapping in half, suddenly he bellowed down at me, shutting up won't make this go away. I wheeled away, continuing my journey away from him with wobbly steps. Stop. Shutting up will only make this worse. He continued to shout. Do you really want to die with all of this anger and bitterness inside of you? Do you want people to remember you this way? I stopped walking, stooping down to squat near the swirling ground, the energy starting to seep from me and make my legs quake harder. Shut up. Stop it. Shut up. I tried to block out what he was saying with my one empty hand. Keeping this all in and pushing everyone away will only make you turn into an empty shell. I stood quickly, my head swimming and the ground rocking, and after I gained my balance, I stared up into his face, my voice breaking as I screamed back, I already am. He gripped my shoulders, giving me a shake. Then do something about it. His dark eyes were bright and afraid. Don't you understand how miserable this makes me? All I want to do is help. Stop pushing me away. Let me in. I pushed his hands away. I had started to cry. I didn't know when I had. I can't, I told him through my breaking voice. It rose again. I can't. Why not? My voice was racked with sobs. Because if I let you close, I'll only hurt you more when I don't survive. The words, irrepressible, tumbled out of me before I could stop them. You have to stay away from me. I'll only destroy you. Just get away. The words I didn't say were implied that if he were to go first, it would destroy me, too. And subconsciously I had been trying to prepare myself for the pain, to prepare us both for the inevitable. Immediately, in the blink of an eye, the anger and hurt drained from Butch's face. A calm replaced it as he took in a deep breath and sighed. I'm afraid it's too late for that, he said, voice gentle, with not the slightest hint of regret in it. The tiniest and briefest tug pulled at his mouth, unrepentant. Through the haze of upset and alcohol, I stared at him, shaking uncontrollably. He held a hand out to me, palm open. A truce. 
Feel better now? Slow, he tilted his head to the side. He looked at me softly. Can we stop? Just like that, I stopped. Frowning, and awareness flowing back into my brain, the anger drained out of my body like quicksand. And immediately I realized what I had been doing. The half-empty bottle fell from my hand. Inside the paper bag, it shattered against the ground, spilling the rest of the vodka across the pavement. He'd done it on purpose. Fought with me so that I'd feel better. He knew how upset and how on edge I had been, and he knew that I couldn't physically spar to relieve all of my stress because of how weak I'd been. So he'd picked an argument so that not only I'd feel better, but I would also know to stop avoiding him. To take refuge in him. That even though I didn't want to burden my sisters with my pain, that didn't mean he wanted the same fate. He couldn't take away my pain completely, the alcohol hadn't, and maybe at this point nothing would, but he would shoulder it, too. Take on my burden with me. Make it not so crushing and oppressive. We would shoulder both of our pain. Together. Because maybe that was all we had left. More tears blurred my vision. Unbidden, and stumbling, I closed the distance between us once more, this time, wrapping my arms around his neck as his arms closed around me. I'm sorry, I sobbed into his chest, my face buried in the soft cotton of his black shirt. My voice shook with helplessness. God, Butch. I'm so sorry. Butch pulled me snug against him. We're okay now, huh? There we go. That's better. He turned his face into my hair, smoothing hands across my shoulders. And my back as I sobbed harder, hiccuping and choking on my own tears. His cheek pressed against the top of my head. Shoo, stay with me, Spitfire. I'm right here. I'll always be. In that cold night air after midnight, we stood there for a while, letting the alcohol fade from our systems. As I continued to weep everything I had kept buried inside of me, feeling my soul cracking and developing fissures, the most beautiful person I had ever known held the pieces of me together so that I wouldn't fall apart. 168. That was the number of indentations I had counted in the ceiling so far. Sometimes I lose count. A lot of them looked identical, and I would get them mixed up and accidentally count a few of them two or three times, and I would have to start over. Sometimes a noise would distract me, particularly someone that was trying to talk to me. I would ignore them until they closed my bedroom door again, and then I would start counting again. I have been playing this game for three weeks now. I found that it helped. It helped keep the spiraling panic and misery away from me. It helped distract me from what was inevitably happening to me and my sisters. It wasn't healthy, I knew. But I wasn't particularly healthy right now either. And now that we all knew that nothing would change the state of our health, what was the point of trying? My body was giving up on itself, and there was nothing I could do. So why even do anything? So I just kept playing my games. When counting indentations on the ceiling started to grow stale, instead I rolled over onto my side, closed my eyes. Sometimes I would sleep, but when I couldn't sleep, I thought of scenarios. Thought of lives that weren't my own. Imagined lifetimes where I was a dancer in the New York Ballet, lifetimes where I was a world-famous fashion model, or a gold medal gymnast. The president, making decisions that changed lives and history forever. 
or even just continued my life in the sorority house with my 30 house sisters and Liz. Having spa nights and giant sleepovers in the living room, gossiping and watching movies and laughing until one by one we fell asleep. I thought up fantastic lives where everything I did or said was perfect, and Boomer was right beside me, and we had the picture-perfect life. Nothing would ever be wrong, or hard, or painful. Life would be blissful. But sometimes I would imagine them too hard, and they would feel so real that I would open my eyes and realize with a jolt of shock that it was all gone. And a lump would rise in the back of my throat and an insatiable ache would grow inside of me when I inevitably realized that it was fake and a life like that would be impossible. That I was dying. That even living my real life wouldn't be a possibility for me anymore. So when that happened, as it always inevitably did, I would lie on my back, turn my eyes back to the ceiling and start to count again. One. Two. Three. Four. One day, however, the counting wasn't enough for me anymore. The counting didn't smother the despair and the writhing loud questions in my head. They didn't get rid of the pain, the confusion, the hopelessness. And I decided I couldn't lie there any longer. That early morning, slowly, I sat upwards in my bed. I sat like that for ten minutes or so, letting my blood flow adjust, letting the dizziness leave my head. Then, one by one, I shifted my legs so that they were dangling off the edge of the bed. Underneath, my baggy blue pajama shorts, they were pale, even paler. Than they would normally be this time of year. White against my pastel blue satin sheets. I stood slowly, as slow as I could muster, and still my legs buckled. I had barely moved off of my bed for three weeks, only to bathe and hobble up and down the stairs for meals, and my muscles were all protesting. I stood still, flexing my joints to let them get used to my weight on top of them all again. Once I felt like I was ready to move again, I knelt down next to my bed where there was a large, flat plastic storage box of belongings Professor had brought down from my old room at the sorority house. He had done that for my sisters from their dorm room, too, and then had decontaminated them so that there would be no chance of any of us picking up any outside germs. Opening it, I reached down inside the clear box, taking out my favorite light blue hoodie. I was cold, so I put it on. The feeling of wearing it helped ground me a little, too, helped me feel as if things were more normal, even if they weren't, and would never be again. I stood again, reached for the portable pole that my nighttime chemical X drip was hanging off of and grasped it, and with it I began to make my slow journey out of my room. I opened the door, left through it, and left my bedroom behind. The house was still peacefully quiet the way that it always was early in the morning. I began to make my way past my sister's bedrooms. Blossom's bedroom came first, and her hot pink door was cracked open slightly. Through it, I heard the sound of Blossom sleeping, and the sound of Brick next to her on her bed, awake and restless. Staying as quiet as I could, I moved away from her room and further down the hallway, my four-pole wheeling next to me. I came upon Buttercup's shut checkered green and black door next. It didn't surprise me that I didn't hear Buttercup inside. She and Butch were probably elsewhere, just like she had been the past few weeks. I knew it should have concerned me but I also knew that she would be back when she felt like it. All of us had figured out long ago that Buttercup won't stay where she doesn't want to be, even if being in said place was for her well-being. Butch would make sure she would be okay, anyhow. He wouldn't let her out of his sight.
Keeping my face turned away from the next open doorway, I passed the boy's dark guest room. I knew without looking that it was empty. I started making my way down the stairs, my hand glued to the railing in a steel grip, my other hand lifting and setting my fore pull down on each step next to my feet. It took some time, but I managed to make it down without fumbling. Shuffling through the living room and the kitchen, my focus was resolutely fixed on where I was heading. So much that I hadn't taken a good look at my surroundings. Just as I was reaching for the knob on the door that led down to the basement, I heard a voice. Where are you off to, princess? Boomer. I turned slowly, and there he was, in the kitchen, sitting in one of the chairs at the kitchen table, must and in his pajamas like I was. There was a full, untouched mug of coffee in front of him, but he had his ankles crossed and his arms folded, the way he sits when he falls asleep in a chair. I hadn't even realized that was where he'd been, although I probably should have guessed that he was awake someplace else when he wasn't in the guest room. Hearing his voice had snapped me out of a stupor. I'm going to talk to Professor, I said finally in a foggy, soft voice. It felt like it had been ages since I'd even spoken. Boomer nodded slowly, then blinked at me. He was examining me. When was the last time I had showered? It had to have been days. I probably looked crazy, but I couldn't bring myself to care lately. He asked me, are you alright? Of course I wasn't, but I knew how he meant it. He wanted to know that I wasn't in pain. And at that moment, I wasn't. I'm okay, I told him. Just needed to get out of my room for a little while. I tried to manage a smile, but my face barely moved. I wondered if I even knew what a smile was anymore. Seeing my change in expression, he returned it. Also not quite a smile, but close to one. Of course. As long as you're okay, he said. His head reclined back, hanging over the back of the chair he sat in, but his gaze never left me. I'll be there for you when you get back. I nodded at him, then I turned, finally turning the door knob and journeying into the basement where I knew Professor would be, taking my careful journey downstairs once again. Once I made it down, my bare feet made no sound against the freezing tiled floors. The only sound was the wheels of my four-pole squeaking. When I didn't hear any sound of movement, I finally called out softly, Professor? There was a moment of continued silence, then a gentle voice responded to mine. In here, Bubbles. I followed where his voice had come from, padding further into the laboratory part of the basement. Hidden on the far end of it was a small office where there was a white desk, along with a white desk chair, endless shelves of thick, heavy books, and a large whiteboard. Sitting at the desk was Professor's form, his white lab coat disheveled and wrinkled and his head in his hands. As I walked in, he looked up at me, a wary look in his tired eyes. Hi, sweetie. Do you need more liquid for your drip? Are you in any pain? Despite the fear in his voice, I could tell he was trying to stay level-headed. Reassuring. For me. No, I told him right away, doing some of my own reassuring. I feel okay. Just tired. I just wanted to come talk to you. At my reassurance, slight relief crossed his face. Of course, he said, then he stood up from his chair and gestured to it. Here, sit down. I went over to sit in his warm desk chair. From it, I looked up at him. 
He was examining me the same way Boomer had been just minutes earlier. Reluctantly, I asked, what is it? Nothing, he said quickly. Unconvincingly. My eyebrows rose skeptically. Then he sighed, starting again. Well, sweetie, I'm relieved to see you. But I've just been worried about you. You haven't been very talkative lately. Well, you've barely talked at all lately. His lips pressed together briefly before he said, you haven't been yourself. I nodded, taking in what he said. Then I half shrugged. Do you really expect me to be? I asked, my tone gentle, despite the meaning the words carried. No. After a moment, the professor shook his head. I suppose not. A couple more seconds passed, and I decided to change the subject. So, what have you been doing down here all night? I didn't have to ask him beforehand if he'd been down here all night, getting no sleep. It was obvious in his bloodshot eyes, and the bags underneath them. His whole face was worn and exhausted. Professor drew in a long breath, then sighed. More research, as usual. I thought I'd found a good lead, but then I got stuck. He didn't seem to be willing to offer up more information than that. I nodded once, moving on to my next question. Have your leads been good so far? Yes, he said. And no. I wasn't sure what to make of that nonspecific answer. But maybe it was better that I didn't know. The next question weighed heavily on me. The last question I really wanted, needed, the answer to. After pondering for a bit if I should ask, I decided to ask anyway, figuring I was ready for whatever I was about to hear. How long? I asked. From the heavy pause that came from the professor, I knew that he knew exactly what I was asking him. He hesitated, a frown on his face and solemnity in his eyes. He hesitated so long I didn't think he was ever going to answer. Then he drew in a breath and said, his release of each word slow and careful, at your current rate of decline, I would say two months. At the very most. He blinked, finally meeting my gaze again. But it might be closer to a month and a half. I held Professor's gaze for a long time, letting that soak in. Then I looked at the ground. A minute or two passed, without either of us saying anything. I was the one to break the quiet. You know what I used to wish for when I was young? I asked him suddenly, the question springing to my lips. Professor seemed as startled by my sudden question as I was. Then, very faintly, a smile. What was it? I closed my eyes, remembering. I used to wish every night that you could invent a way to give yourself superpowers. I opened my eyes again, looking back up at him. I never told you this, but I wanted you to be a superhero, too. I wanted you to join us in battles and help us save the world. Professor released a breath that was nearly a chuckle. His weak smile remained, though it still didn't reach his eyes. That's adorable. I went on. You were always my hero, Professor. Even before now. But in a way, my wish has come true. Now, in your own way, you're the only superhero left among all of us. All at once, Professor's face smile left his face as it drained of blood. Slight, weak amusement turned into fear almost instantly. It's up to you now, I told him. I reached toward him, taking one of his hands. 
I held them in between mine, looking up into his pale face, with grave sincerity. There's nothing that we can do to help ourselves. It's up to you. You're the only one that can rescue us. He still didn't look at me. His hand trembled. Promise me you'll never give up. Tell me you'll keep trying. No matter what happens. I gripped his hand tighter, the tone of my voice imploring. We're counting on you, Professor. You're our last hope. Promise me. Finally, the professor turned his eyes to me again. And though the fear hadn't left his face, his eyes were stronger. Still held some will in them. Very slowly, he nodded. I promise. With the words that I had wanted to hear leaving his mouth, something tightly knit released in me. Leaning forward in the chair, I wrapped my arms around him and buried my face in his lab coat. No matter what, I'd needed to hear that professor wouldn't give up on us. That was all I needed to hear. I believe in you, I told him, voice muffled against him. And I love you. No matter what. Professor didn't answer, but his arms wound around me tightly. And I wasn't sure, but I thought I heard him trying not to cry. Much later, after I eventually went back up the basement steps and left the lab, Boomer wasn't in the kitchen anymore. I wandered back up the second-story stairs, ventured back to the hallway. He wasn't in the guest room, either. But when I made it back to my bedroom, there he was. Sprawled across my bed, chest rising and falling as he slept. At the sight of him, for the first time in days, surprising me as it came, a genuine smile, crossed my lips. As quietly as I could, I went into my bathroom and shut the door. Carefully disconnecting my drip from my arm, I disrobed from my pajamas and took a relaxing, warm shower. After getting out of the shower, drying myself, and slipping into my fuzzy blue bathrobe, I came out of the bathroom. As soon as I walked through the door and back into my bedroom, I saw him sitting up on my bed, awake. Taking in my newly clean, slightly damp appearance, he smiled at me. Automatically, completely unable to control it, I smiled back. Hey, he greeted in a soft voice. Told you I'd be here for you when you got back. I made my way closer to my bed. I know, I replied. Thanks for keeping your promise. His face softened, sobering. I'll always be here for you. You know that, his eyes locked with mine, right? All I did was nod, as once again, the smile came back. The real one that only he could seem to give me, even when just a little while ago, I thought I wouldn't be able to smile again. Good, he said. Then he scooted over on my bed, patting the space next to him. Come nap with me? I climbed up on the bed, then I curled into his side as his arm came around me. He didn't say anything more, and neither did I. My eyes closed. Our breathing slowed, became even. And as I had so many times before, I drifted off to dreamland in his arms. In the dream I had, I dreamed of a place, a time, where not everything was perfect, but it was good. Things were good, and I was given the incredible privilege of normalcy. The gift of waking up in the morning, going to school, and then saving the day with my sisters. I dreamt of paradise. Chapter 18, Born to Die. Everything surrounding us was still frozen. These days, my sisters and I have become mostly observing the outside world through the windows of our home. Though things outside should have cheered us up to an extent, there was no modicum of happiness outdoors. The sky was slate gray.
Plants and grass on the ground were still dried and shriveled up, trees' branches still barren and knobby. The cold kept any of our neighbors from spending much time at all out in the frigid air. Everything is dead. No signs of things ever coming back to life. Considering what we were dealing with now, it only seemed fitting that the world outside still looked like this. Things lately have been bleak. My sisters and I had begun to lose our appetites. The voracious, empty hunger I had nearly always felt in the morning had started to wane. It lessened to the point of only wanting a few bites of food before I already felt full. When I continued to bite and chew, it felt like chewing wet cement. For about two days, or three, the three of us tried to eat anyway, to satiate any worries Professor and the boys had. But eventually, we told them what was going on with our appetites. They told us to continue to try to eat. To do our best to get the food down. So we continued to try. Several days later, one morning, after Bubbles forced down breakfast, she barely made it to the bathroom in time before it all started to come back up. Having scarcely eaten anything and not being affected, Buttercup and I jumped from the table and ran after her. I was the first to make it to the bathroom, and I slid to a stop in the doorway at the sight of Bubbles bent over the toilet seat. Slowly, she turned her head in my direction, her blue eyes wide. Her hands clutched the white porcelain seat in a vice grip. She said in a quiet, scared voice, Blossom? Hearing Buttercup approaching behind me, I quickly broke from the doorframe and came to Bubbles. When I stood behind her, I immediately halted, immobilized, my eyes locked down on the toilet bowl in horror. The chewed bits of food were drenched in black. From the great reduction in appetite, and then this new obstacle of rejecting some foods, the three of us began to lose weight. It wasn't quite noticeable yet, but with the professor keeping a constant record of our weights along with other important details he monitored every day, he made sure to tell us. He said he would start us on a nutrient drip soon, so that at least we could get the nutrients we needed and we wouldn't feel so weak. As he told us this, I wondered, silently, if it would ever be possible to not feel this weak ever again. But I didn't voice this question aloud. I didn't dare. On the other hand, the boy's health had begun to decline as well. Headaches and nosebleeds became frequent for them. Nightly chemical X strips, as we had been getting, became a requirement for them too. The professor asked them to sleep in the basement hospital ward a few nights a week so he could keep close watch on their decline and symptoms. Their appetite hadn't been touched yet, but we knew it wouldn't be too far off. One day, early March, after the boys had eaten dinner and my sisters and I had two or three bites of chicken soup before we gave up, the six of us gathered in the mostly dark living room, just one lamp lit across the room. Professor left us to our own devices, departing back down to his laboratory dungeon. All six of us, instead of trying to squish onto the small white couch, opted to sit on the floor instead. We all sat in a circle. Sitting this way reminded me of Thanksgiving, when we'd sat on the floor just like this, playing a board game with not a care in the world. The sick sense of irony hadn't missed any of us, there was a thick uneasiness filling the entire room as we settled down onto the floor. We had agreed to all come in here to have a discussion. But as soon as we sat, the room teemed with silence. No one said anything. We just sat on the carpet, avoiding each other's gazes, avoiding the inevitable agony having this discussion would bring. The time for all of us to release the most unutterable things had come. 
Brick was the first to finally break the grave muteness that had overcome all of us. Well, he started, folding his arms and taking the time to look at each of us. Let's just get this over with. Someone has to break the ice, and it looks like it has to be me. So, here it is, we're all gonna be dead soon because of the very thing that we're made of. He halted, looking up at the ceiling as if saying those words had physically pained him. I don't know about you guys, but does this make sense to any of you? It makes no sense, Boomer answered his brother, eyes and voice hollow. At all, Butch finished. His low voice was tinged with wrath, it matched his tempestuous eyes. I feel like I'm going crazy, Brick continued, his voice raising with panic and frustration. He looked at all of us again, crimson eyes wide. Am I dreaming? Is any of this real? Am I losing my mind? I answered him next, voice calm. I wish I could tell you that this was some fever-induced nightmare, I told him. Believe me. I've wished for it a hundred times. Bubble said to me, you're not the only one. I risked a glance at her. I couldn't handle her drained expression for more than a second or two. It was the polar opposite of her usual sweet youthful brightness. It made her look years older. I looked away. Brick started again, his voice filled with the same frustration. If we were just going to fall apart, if we were just going to end like this, what were we even doing here in the first place? Why even exist at all? His hands folded behind his neck, the way he always did when he tried to calm himself down. I watched his eyelids slide shut, watched him try to breathe slowly. Boomer, boldly, was the one to answer his seemingly rhetorical questions, staring at his brother under a heavy brow and the tangle of his light hair. I guess anyone could ask themselves that. Even humans. Startling us all with the sound of her voice for the first time since this discussion started, drawing all of our taken-aback gapes to her, Buttercup remarked through a clenched jaw, at least humans weren't made in a lab. All of us blinked at her for a few seconds, shocked at both her unexpected contribution and the words she'd said. She had conformed to our group discussion plan, but she had settled down in her spot on the carpet tents and hostel, like a coiled cobra. I knew it would only be a matter of time before she would strike. After the moment of surprise passed, Butch countered, leaning back on his palms, at least you weren't made in a prison cell. The toilet of a prison cell, Brick corrected him, the slightest bit of a shadowy grin on his lips. Then a moment passed and it disappeared, his lips twisting downward into a grimace again. The brief moment of the group's amusement abruptly faded as well, giving way to the grim atmosphere once more. Silence choked the room again. This feeling, this overwhelming feeling of hopelessness pressing in on everyone on all sides, had been something that hadn't gotten any easier to bear. It wasn't any normal kind of sadness, it was grief. It was the grief of six people who knew their time was nearly up, that there was nothing that they could do about it. We grieved for ourselves, for each other. We grieved what basically had already been lost. I didn't know if it was the despondent mood in the house, or the reality of our circumstances crushing on me, but the confession came out from its buried place deep inside of me for the first time since the afternoon that professor had said it to me. You know we're sterile, right? Met with stark silence and stares from all of them, I elaborated, we're all sterile. Professor told me that a few months ago. I didn't know before, but. 
I trailed off, not knowing how to finish that sentence. Even if we were to live long enough, none of us would ever have children. Our bodies are too hostile of an environment to hold life in them. I paused, the air inside me heavy. I looked at all of their stunned faces, seeing them processing this new information. Then came out the hefty question that had secretly festered in me ever since the revelation of this knowledge. What are we? We're science experiments, said Brick, not wasting even one second to answer me. His voice was cold. Stark. That's all we are, and that's all we'll ever be. I couldn't say I disagreed with him. And to be perfectly honest, I think I'd been thinking this answer all along, somewhere deep inside of me. I'd just been too terrified to face it. Choosing to build upon my question, Boomer spoke next, his once normally calm eyes now hard and pensive and distant. We're the only ones of our kind. We have no hope of reproducing. So what happens when we're gone? What do you mean, our kind? Butch refuted with a hard dry laugh. Boomer looked at him cuttingly, obviously feeling slighted. Butch went on in a disparaging manner, there is no, our kind. Do you think we're some sort of species? We're not even technically alive. I held up a hand, trying to de-escalate the oncoming argument between them. Now, I wouldn't say that, I cut in. Dry, I added, we're not dead yet. Butch shot back at me, meeting my eyes across the circle sharply, yeah, but we're gonna be. And how do you think we'll be buried? Like saints? No. We'll be as good as toxic waste in the ground. At what he'd said, my throat tightened. I didn't respond. I couldn't. Don't say that, Bubbles said to Butch in a brittle voice. It's true, though, Brick replied. His voice was much calmer now. But it was calm to the point of near emotionlessness. He said brusquely, we're synthetic. We were never meant to be here on this planet, like the rest of the living, organic beings here. We aren't made of carbon like them. We won't turn to dust when we die. We'll just disintegrate into toxic black mush. As I listened to his answer, feeling the hollow aching in me grow, I realized he was right. It was something I had never thought of, even despite every other torturous thought I'd had lately, but as soon as he said it, it had made sense. It never had occurred to me that we were something that was against nature itself, but by definition, that was what we were. What we always would be. My throat stung, I tried to force it back down, steeling myself against the urge to cry. Breaking the stillness, Buttercup spoke up again. What are we really here for? Her tone was icy. Hostile. We all turned our gazes to her. If we're not human, what is the point? What is our purpose? After clearing my throat, I answered her, trying to sound leveled and calm once again. We're superheroes. We're meant to protect people. It was the only way I knew how to respond. It was the only answer I'd ever known, the answer to everything I had based my entire life around. The answer I had to cling to. She snorted in disdain, obviously displeased with my answer. Yeah. Right. To protect those humans that hate us and look at us like we're some freakish anomaly. Half the time they didn't even appreciate what we did for them, always found something to pick at or complain about or accuse us of. She folded her arms, aiming a muted glare at me. Some purpose. 
Something inside of me soured at her use of the past tense. What we did for them instead of what we do for them. Why did that bother me so much to hear? It wasn't like it wasn't true. Brick commented, they never quite understood us, did they? He paused, looking up from staring at his socked feet. We were always outsiders to them. I said, maybe we never quite understood them, either. I took a deep breath, then let it out, slowly. Achingly. Not until now. Not until it was too late, added Brick, bleak. Bubbles, out of nowhere, asked all of us, what if we weren't dying? The rest of us, staring, waited for her to elaborate, startled at her sudden question. She went on, I mean, what if we weren't dying, but we would never have superpowers again and were just like humans? An even longer pause passed as we continued to stare at her. What would we even be doing with our lives then? Who would we be? Silence stretched on as all of us considered this new, almost taboo question. It was a question I had never dared to let myself think, and I was sure that everyone else felt that way, too. But this would have been our reality if our bodies weren't destroying themselves, so it would have been something we'd have had to deal with. Almost half a minute passed, before I was the one to scrounge up the courage to answer her first. I'd be a scientist. Slowly, I added with the ghost of a weak grin on my lips, just like Professor. I'd open up a bakery, Bubble said next. There was a sad sort of smile on her face, too. I thought of the hundreds of cakes and the amazing cupcakes she'd made during middle school, high school, and the years since. I didn't have an ounce of doubt that her bakery would have been nothing short of a citywide sensation, maybe countrywide. Butch was the next to speak, not smiling at all, but staring off as if imagining something. I'd have my own garage. Restore old cars, make them like new. A tinge of resentment touched his last sentence. I'd be an artist, Boomer said after his brother, then, shrugged a little emptily. I don't know what kind I would be. Guess I would have had to figure that out first. Whatever kind of art you do, you would be wonderful at it, Bubbles said to him softly. She reached toward his hand to squeeze it. He squeezed her hand back, offering her a small soft, grateful grin. Another beat passed before Brick finally admitted, after I prodded him with my gaze, I'd be a coach. Or a teacher. Pause. Maybe a professor. The rest of us slowly turned to look at Buttercup, who had been silent since the subject of conversation had changed. Seeing all of us looking at her, she heaved a tired sigh. Is this for real? Are we really doing this right now? Yes, I replied bluntly, not liking her attitude. We were all being honest and open here. That was what this group discussion was for. She had been slightly honest too, for a few short moments. Why wasn't she willing to answer this one hypothetical question? Buttercup rolled her eyes, exasperated. Fine. I'll play along with this little game of make-believe. Her head lolled to the side as she sighed again, this one longer and more drawn out. Then, in a subdued voice, she said, I would have my own dojo. I would either be a Wing Chun instructor or a Taekwondo one. She looked directly at me, raising her eyebrows dryly. Happy? Strongly feeling like anything I said would just provoke her further, I said nothing, only blinked at her with a carefully vacant expression. Boomer spoke next, thankfully changing the subject. 
You know, those creatures we fought in November, the ones with the three circles on them, were just like them. They were made of something almost like Chemical X, and then they disintegrated. And now we're doing the same thing. Did you ever think? He trailed off. Paused heavily. Then cautiously, he asked us, what made them the monsters, when in reality, they were just like us. Doesn't that make us monsters, too? Like a scene from a film, the battle between us and the 50 white monsters in Townsville Park played through my head as clearly as if it had just happened. I thought of how we took each creature down, one by one, as if they were ants. Ripping them to literal pieces like they were cardboard. Like they were trash. Like they were nothing. The image of myself ripping one of them in half with my own bare hands was particularly prominent. Thick, opaque black gushing through my fingers and running down my forearms, the same black that now came out of my nose and out of my stomach. Then, the memory skipped forward, I thought of the way that the remaining monster army had all died by themselves, dropping down to the earth one by one. The flying ones falling out of the sky, not unlike how Buttercup had fallen out of the sky as we were fighting him's nightmarish illusions. The most vivid image I had from the end of the big Townsville Park battle was the gaunt, fanged, four-legged creature that had fallen down dead on the ground right next to Brick and I tiny black eyes sightless. Black pouring out of its throat and into the dead grass, like a fountain. Dead before it probably even realized it. Brick was the one to respond to Boomer's question to us all, cynicism coding every word. We're not human, that's for damn sure. I thought now of how it felt to watch all the creatures die. To watch them just fall to the ground as if they had never even moved. Why did we think we were above them when we were just like them? I asked the group in general, my voice sounding withdrawn. Defeated. What gave us the right to believe that? Stop. We are not like them, Brick disputed, you know that. We're not monsters. Maybe we're made of chemical X similar to theirs, sure. But we have the conscience to realize when we're doing right and wrong. We have the awareness, the choice. They were programmed to kill. That's all that they were for. They didn't even have self-awareness. They were just biological robots. You mean like we used to be? Butch asked his brother after a moment. Brick turned to look at him, shaking his head and scowling. No. Not the same thing. How? Butch stared at him, eyes severe. Mojo created us and brainwashed us to destroy the Utonium sisters. How is that any different? How could we? No, no for sure, that the monsters wouldn't have eventually developed the way we did, the way we developed our own personalities, our own goals? Brick didn't answer his brother, he didn't seem to even want to. He just stared down at the floor, silent. Boomer continued in the vein of where his brother had left off, sounding haunted. And what gave us the right to take that small, minute chance of development away from them? We saw them as evil, but objectively, isn't what we did evil, too? No. Bubbles was shaking her head, already rejecting the very idea. Don't even say that. Those things aren't the same. How do you know? Boomer was staring at her, his gaze desperate. His voice had risen slightly, not with disagreement, but with fear. He seemed to want to believe her more than anything. She met his fear with assurance. Because we were protecting all those humans in the city, she answered, 
frowning and sounding 1000% sure of herself. We were protecting all of them because they can't protect themselves. And that could never be evil. Never. Once, I would have immediately agreed with what Bubbles said, without question. But these days, things that I had once thought I had understood made no sense to me anymore. Up was down, right was left. And I was living, but all I could think about was death. I said to the room, moving the subject along after the uneasiness had gotten too thick, even if we're more like humans than those things were, humans have an average life expectancy of 70 years. We didn't even get 20. Everyone let this fact sink in. I could almost hear the words echoing inside everyone's heads. Not even 20. Not even 20. Not even 20. Who would have thought that the Powerpuff Girls and Rowdy Rough Boys would only live to be 19? Not me. Not anybody. Butch said next, breaking through my increasingly spiraling thoughts, I feel like something out there is laughing at us. He paused with a bitter, twisted smirk that was at odds with the resentment in his eyes. Hell, probably the whole internet is. Those keyboard monkeys. I hate them all. They'd probably come in here and destroy us themselves if they could, Buttercup muttered. Then she added, cynicism practically dripping from her dry lips, if only they really knew what was happening now. Our disappearance from the public eye had not gone unnoticed. It started out as small, quiet theories on the internet, then it expanded, leaving the internet and moving to word of mouth, and by then, the media train had gone off the rails again. It turned out that the seemingly harmless, jaded counter girl at Pop's Ice Cream and Gelato hadn't been so harmless after all, days after my public nosebleed incident, security cam footage of it found its way online. I was clearly visible in it, as was Brick, and so were the thin black rivers running out of my nostrils and dripping off of my face. Within a week, the footage had gone viral, 80 million views worldwide. Things had spiraled rapidly out of control, quicker than we could manage it. We couldn't go a day without being part of some new sensationalist headline about why the Powerpuff Girls and Rowdy Rough Boys hadn't been seen in weeks, why my nose had been dripping black. So, knowing any excuse we could come up with wouldn't have been believed anyway, not this time, we did the next best thing, we hid. Professor kept the television shut off these days, and our internet-accessible devices were banned from use, rendering them all into nothing more than black mirrors. As well, we stayed indoors exclusively now, with all the drapes on the windows closed. If anything at all, once in a while we could go out into the fenced backyard for a short time, if we were quiet and didn't attract attention. But the news vans, parked across the street from our house were enough of a motivator to not leave through the front door. What was once our asylum had become our vacuum-sealed tomb. Boomer was the one to answer Buttercup after another long beat of no one saying anything. It's better that they don't know for now, he said. I didn't think any of us could disagree. After all, it couldn't stay secret for much longer. One way or another, the truth would come out. Unprovoked, Bubbles commented to Buttercup and I, almost conversationally except for the emptiness in her voice, you know, it's our birthday soon. In a month and a half. Buttercup coughed, and it almost sounded like a laugh. It was probably meant to be one. We'll never make it that long, she muttered. Bubbles blinked at Buttercup, then she asked no one in particular, her face pinched and her voice quivering, is this what we deserve for wanting to just live normally? 
to live at least a little bit like everyone else? Her last question came out the quietest. Do we deserve to die this way? Maybe, replied Brick. There was another heavy silence at his answer. He continued, almost wryly, maybe we're just immoral scientific experiments that we're never supposed to exist as long as we have. Maybe we're just living proof that playing God in a laboratory is fucked up. I couldn't explain why, but irrational anger flared through me at what he'd said. Immediately, I disputed, but that's not what the professor was doing. We were in an accident. Buttercup immediately cut in. Somehow that makes it even worse. She stopped for a moment, a strange look crossing her carefully impassive face momentarily, then she added, I mean, you have to admit it, we've lasted pretty long, for a bunch of mistakes. She hooted once. A loud, humorless, angry laugh. I stared at her, not answering. Bubbles fell into a quiet. What about Mojo, then? Boomer's voice was dreary as he asked it, as if he already knew the answer. What does that make him? He was playing God, that's for sure. Brick had an almost humorous look on his face. Maybe it would have been humorous if it weren't for the rage that remained in his stormy ruby eyes. He always thought himself to be a god, the furry bastard. He probably thought he was creating some sort of revolutionary creature when he made us. Little did he know what messes we would turn out to be. Understatement, Butch said vacantly. We all agreed to stop for a few minutes, dispersing and taking a break to leave to get water, use the restroom and give our emotions a rest for a time. After maybe ten minutes, we reconvened in the living room, gathering back in our circle, sitting down in our same spots. The break would prove to be needed, considering the conversations that immediately followed. Almost as soon as we had settled down again, Butch abruptly blurted out to us, remember when I tried to kill myself? In high school? Everyone froze. Dark silence pulsed for a moment or two. The room palpably churned with discomfort. It was not something any of us liked to bring up. That time in our lives was controversial for all of us, and complicated. Junior year of high school was what ended up bringing all of us together, but the means had been very difficult and painful for everybody. For Butch, trying to stay out of Buttercup's life had been so difficult, so impossible, that he had attempted to end his own life with a gun to his head. Even knowing back then that a bullet wouldn't have killed him, he had still tried. Buttercup was the one who had kept the attempt from unfolding, had literally slapped the gun out of his hand, and over the top as it was, it was what finally led the two to be together, the realization that staying apart would kill them both. Buttercup never talked about it. I think that it still terrified her to think about, even now. So that was what made her answering him before anybody else did all the more surprising. I will never forget that day. It was the first time any emotion had leaked into her carefully composed voice since this whole discussion had started. It was low, underneath the surface, but it was their, old, pungent burden. The sound of it stunned the rest of us into respectful soundlessness. Instead of saying anything, I watched the way Buttercup's eyes had locked onto the fluff of the white carpet beneath her, the way her muscles had stiffened up. The way she was staring, it was almost like she was seeing through it. Maybe the slightest reminder caused her to relive those moments all over again. Maybe that was why she never talked about it. Butch continued uneasily, face pensive. I never really thought about death. As a possibility. 
if it had actually worked. It sounds stupid, I know, but it's true. Between every other sentence, his furrowed brow would twitch as he stopped, in deep thought. And as he did, it occurred to me that this was maybe the first time he had talked so openly about this. That day, I was so out of my mind with sorrow that I wasn't thinking straight. I wasn't thinking about what dying would have really been like. About what would happen afterwards. He shook his head then, as if snapping himself out of a reverie. His teeth clenched together as he said, but I didn't know sorrow then. I thought I did. But I had no idea. His lip curled, bitterness, passing over his face. I knew Buttercup wouldn't reply this time, especially with the faraway, vacant look in her eyes now, so I did instead. To be fair, none of us have ever had to think about it. Not this way. I let out a soundless sigh. I suppose that's why we'd been so unprepared. All of us. My mind went briefly to the professor. Slaving away down in the laboratory, inventing more solutions for our snowballing health issues and looking for a cure that we all knew likely didn't exist. When Butch spoke again, not necessarily responding to me, but speaking to everyone, the strangest look was on his face. It looked like it was caught between fear and, guilty hope. I wonder what it will feel like. He looked up, looking at each of us in our spots in the powwow. Do you think we'll be lucky enough to just fall asleep and never wake up? All of us stared back at him, collectively terrified at even answering his question. A few more beats passed, then Butch said, sorry. Shouldn't have asked that. The strange expression, the fear and the hope, had immediately left his face. His usual guarded one replaced it. Just forget I said that. I shook my head at him, even though I still felt the remaining, prickly echoes of shock at what he'd said. Don't be sorry. If anything, besides shock, I was also weirdly, morbidly gratified in a way that someone else had asked such a question. It made me realize that I wasn't the only one thinking of questions like that. It was a perfectly reasonable question. Even a great one. Boomer, who was next to him, reassured his brother. He reached to gently pat his shoulder. It's just that I don't know if anyone has the guts to answer it. Butch nodded slowly in our understanding, his lips pressed together in a tight line. He fell back into a stony silence. Brick, likely feeling the change in his brother's demeanor, changed the subject once more. Here's another question to consider. Do any of you think there's a heaven? Not just for humans, but also for things like us? He switched his gaze to each of us in the circle, one by one. Let's just say there is a god out there. Do you think he gives a shit about our existence? Discomfort passed through the circle yet again. I don't think now's the right time for Sunday school talk, Buttercup commented with the same dryness that she had used before Butch's confession. Come on. I'm serious. Brick paused, looking at all of us again. Admit it. Haven't you ever wondered? I replied, no. I guess I never have. I halted. Then I swallowed hard as I admitted, reluctant, maybe I was too afraid to. Religions of any kind had never been of interest to me. But I had to admit that, at this point in time, Brick's question intrigued me. It also terrified me. It terrified me so much that I buried it, hoping it would never return. Boomer asked the next unspeakable question. Do you think we have souls? 
Of course we do, Bubble said to him softly. Her voice was bleak. There was barely any light left in her eyes. But even still, she continued arguing for our very existence. If we didn't, how would we be able to feel? We feel things just like anyone else. Anger. Sadness. She paused, regarding all of us one by one. Love. Hormones, brick cut in flatly. All different chemical balances in the brain. Illusions. Emotions don't actually exist. Bubbles leveled her dull blue-eyed gaze at him across the circle. She tightened her arms around her knees, and she turned up her chin at him. I don't agree, she simply said. Okay, but it's not a matter of agreeing and not agreeing, Brick argued with her, frustrated, it's scientific fact. Bubbles replied again, tone unruffled, I don't agree that it's fact. I turned to stare at Brick. I felt incredulity spread across my features. Do you really believe in that, Brick? I asked him. He turned his annoyed gaze from my sister and turned to me, wary, quaking one eyebrow. In what? In what you just said. My eyes narrowed slightly, regarding him uneasily now. That emotions don't really exist. It's science, Blossom. It's a fact. You understand, said Brick. He held my gaze impassively. Don't you believe that, too? I held his gaze, frowning and shaking my head in answer. Where had this come from suddenly? Did he honestly believe something like that? Even knowing what? We felt for each other? I believed in science. One thousand percent, I did. But I also believed in love. And he was the one who made me believe in it. No? No, I said. He paused for a long time, holding my gaze even longer, the annoyance gradually fading and being exchanged with an empty sort of despair. Then maybe I don't know, he finally admitted. He gave a short, stiff shake of his head, and his eyes dropped to the ground, releasing mine and becoming blank. I don't know anything anymore. At the unnervingly out-of-character appearance of surrender on his face, my heart gave one rough, unmerciful heave. Slowly, I scooted closer to him, stretching my hand out to meet him and take it gently. I lifted it to press a gentle kiss there, comforting and soft on the back of his hand. Saying nothing, I held his hand between both of mine, hoping he heard more from me with this simple action than with anything I could have said. Maybe none of us really knew anything for sure anymore. What we had always known to be true, our very ways of life, had begun to fall apart at the seams. But maybe it had been presumptuous of us to think that we had life all figured out, anyway. Human or non-human. No one ever really has things figured out. Maybe it was for the best that we finally realized this now. Another natural lull in the group's conversation stalled, and during the silence, Buttercup shifted. She reached into the pocket of her sweatpants for something, and pulled it out. A small box of cigarettes. At the sight of it, my stomach clenched in cold astonishment. Where had that come from? Next, she reached into her other pocket and pulled out a lime green colored lighter. I was unable to stop the question from erupting out of me. Buttercup, since when do you smoke? I'd asked it to be a little sharper than I'd intended. Buttercup took out a single cigarette from the box, putting it between her lips and letting it hang there. She flicked the lighter on, a small flame coming from it, and lit the end of the cigarette. 
She replied tersely, the cigarette bobbing on her bottom lip as she spoke, since recently. I've been doing it for a while, you've just never seen me do it. Seeing as we're imprisoned these days, though, I really have no other choice but to do it here now. She put the lighter away and took a long, careful first drag. Buttercup had never smoked before. Why was she doing it now? Of all times, why now? I watched the end of the cigarette light up as she dragged, staring at it like it was diseased. I couldn't put my finger on exactly why, but the sight of it had made me so furious. I asked aloud, flummoxed, why? As she spoke this time, smoke flowed from her mouth like a veil, fanning out over her face in a sheer curtain and then undulating towards the ceiling. Why the hell not? I'm dead anyway. She looked at me, green eyes as vaguely challenging as they were dull. She took another drag and then said, smoke flowing, try and stop me, red. Take it out of my hand. Go ahead. I dare you. My jaw worked as I held her gaze for a few more seconds, then I dropped my eyes away from her, angry and fed up. I shook my head in disgust. You are unbelievable. My heart was racing in its slow, human-like way. She sputtered another choke laugh. Am I? She took yet another drag, leisurely and indifferent. I was trembling. I continued, my anger increasing and the volume of my voice growing with each word, you know something? You are really unpleasant these days. I've been doing everything I can to avoid you, just like you've been doing. Your negativity makes me feel even sicker than I already am. Bubbles interjected, voice shaking with her hurt, stop. Don't fight. Buttercup, ignoring Bubbles, laughed another choking laugh at me, even louder and even more scornful. Oh? Well, excuse me for not feeling like I had to be fake and peppy when I'm dying, she said the word with such force and poison that it echoed in the quiet room. It made me flinch. She partially folded her hands together in a mocking pleading gesture, her eyes wild with her growing unhinged temper. I'm so sorry, Queen Blossom. How would you like me to act? Optimistic? Like a saint? Or would you prefer that I pretend like nothing is wrong, like you've been doing? Cleaning the house up and making everything perfect? Is that what you want? Butch had partially gotten up from the floor, poised to cross over to her. He warned, Buttercup, stop. Right now. Take it easy, Brick said to her, at the same time. Incredulity and outrage was plain on his face, like he couldn't believe she was erupting out of the blue like this. But I had seen it coming. Anticipated it from the very moment we had sat in this circle. It had taken longer to build up than I'd thought, and she had gone straight from avoidance to lashing out quicker than I'd thought that she would, but nevertheless it had been inevitable. With the way she'd been isolating herself from the majority of us lately, it was bound to happen eventually. Buttercup acted like they hadn't even spoken. In one fluid gesture, she lifted her pant leg and snuffed out her cigarette against her knee as if it didn't even hurt her, leaving a bright red scorch mark on her bare pale skin. Then she hurled the unlit bud directly at me. Shock rippled through the room and the others shouted, and I turned my face away as the cigarette came sailing towards my face and hit me on the cheek. The circle dismantled all at once. Butch rushed up behind her, grabbing her by her shoulders and keeping her in place. Brick was suddenly next to me, 
arm around my shoulders and half between me and her, protective stance in full effect. I felt bubbles on my other side, kneeling, ready to separate us if she had to, mirroring Boomer's exact ready stance on Buttercup's side. I kept my eyes away from Buttercup as she continued her rant, voice becoming louder and louder, tell me what you want, Blossom. Tell me which neat little spotless glass box you want to lock me up inside. Tell me all about how you would like me to be, since you've been doing that for our entire lives already. Tell me, oh great leader, how perfectly pristine you would like for me to act. How clean and prim and goddamn chipper you'd like me to be, the way a Powerpuff girl is supposed to be. Very slowly, I shook my head. Stop now, I said. My voice was barely a whisper. Her words were like knives all over me, sinking deeper and deeper. Please. Buttercup, with Butch's hands still restraining her by her shoulders, stood up and stalked over to me with him in tow behind her, her eyes staring down at me like they wanted to tear through me. Boomer stood as well, rushing to stand between us, his hands open toward her and forcing her to stop. She did, but she never even glanced at him, on a mission, her menacing glower remained on me. Like a speeding train coming off of its tracks, tumbling and folding and imploding on itself, she railed ahead at a deafening volume, bellowing, well guess what, Red? You can take all of your crazy, impossible, neurotic expectations of our perfect superhero lives and shove them up your ass. Because within a small amount of time, the Powerpuff Girls are not going to exist anymore. They are going to die. They are going to become a speck of dust in the vast, sprawling universe. And in the end, nobody is going to remember how perfect we acted, and how flawless our image was in the media, and how lovely we were. For a small amount of time, they're going to remember some girls and boys with superpowers that saved people now and then. But in a hundred years, none of that is even going to matter. All the people who loved us will be dead and long gone. We'll just be one sentence, or maybe two, in some kid's history book. And that's all we'll be. An insignificant, minute sentence that will never encompass everything we accomplished in our entire lives. An insignificant nothing. The room throbbed with the last screamed word, which had been the loudest out of the entirety of the thunderous rant, and the silence that followed it seemed to draw out for ages. Long, empty, terrifying. I was staring back at her as she stared down at me, huffing hard, quaking, red in the face, green eyes tortured and enraged and broken, yet they were fuller of life than they'd been in weeks. Finally, cold, I spoke. Are you done? Buttercup, quiet, looked me full in the face for a long time, eyes ferocious and searching fiercely for something in my stare, anger, probably. And that moment confirmed what I already knew. She had been looking for a fight. That was how Buttercup dealt with things. Fight the pain away, smother it with rage. She had antagonized me purposely, saying everything that she knew would hurt me, hurt all of us, so that I would scream back at her and she could scream at me again and her agony would go away for the moment. It was the only thing I could do for her now, I realized. And I wasn't going to give that to her. Of course, what she'd said had hurt me. If I hadn't had a solid grip on the knowledge that this was what she was doing, what she said might have destroyed me if I'd let it. But I wasn't going to enable her self-destructive, unhealthy coping mechanisms. I refused. And seeing my complete defeat, my complete emptiness at her entire provocation, seemed to finally do her in. 
Buttercup's legs collapsed, coming down from her adrenaline-fueled recklessness. She sat back on her heels, the blood draining from her face, with all of the ticking rage. She looked away from me. Replacing her rage was a cold, hollow anguish all over that she didn't even bother hiding. Kneeling down to meet her, gentle, Butch caught and encircled her in his arms, hiding his face against her hair. There we are, he whispered to her. That's enough now. As always, he was the one to bring her back down to earth again. She slumped forward, catching her face in both of her open trembling hands. Everyone sat down once again, the circle of honesty, from before essentially spoiled now. Quiet stretched on for another few minutes, everyone recovering from that brutal exchange, between us, once again avoiding gazes, and not saying anything. Brick only tightened his hold on me. Then one very quiet voice, came from beside me. You're wrong, you know. Bubbles. I turned to look at her. She seemed to be speaking to Buttercup alone and was observing her, her face ignited with a resolve that I hadn't seen in weeks. She asked, Buttercup, why wouldn't we be remembered? How could we not be? She shook her head slightly. Do you think there's ever been anyone else like us in history? Bubbles, I started, and what I meant to say next, I didn't know. But Bubbles interrupted me anyway. I'm serious, she interjected, looking at me now. Her eyes were wide and sincere. Really, Blossom. Besides the boys, has there ever been anyone else exactly like us? She didn't wait for my answer. She shook her head resolutely. No. People tried, though. They've tried to create more of us. More like us. And they failed every time. No matter what, they couldn't get it right. They could never get our powers right, or our personalities. You know why? She'd leveled the last question to everybody. We all stared at her, not knowing how to answer. Knowing we wouldn't be able to answer, she answered for us. Because we're fate. Shakily, unsteadily, she began to stand Boomer, came quickly to her side and offered her his hand. She took it, standing up all of the way. She continued, we were fated to be here. Blossom, you, me, and Buttercup were created by accident. Yet, through that accident, we turned out to be perfectly balanced, perfectly opposite little girls. Girls that would learn and grow and get older, and would be fated to save the world hundreds of times. You call that an accident? Bubbles turned her eyes to mine. She had begun to tear up, but her face wasn't sad. Her features looked more hopeful than I had seen them in months. Hope radiated from her in palpable waves, stretching up and out and filling every corner of the room, permeating every dark crevice. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. We were fated to protect people. And we have done that so many times that I couldn't even count them. The room had fallen silent once again, but this time, it was in reverence. Every pair of eyes stared at her. Even Buttercup had come out of her slumped posture, lifting her face from her hands, to stare at our sister in rapt wonder. Bubbles went on, maybe we've all done our part. We've already accomplished what we were here to do. But some people on this planet, some humans, can't even say that. There are so many people that leave this earth without ever. Having fulfilled their potential, their true value, to this world, and their dreams. But us, all of us, we can say that we have already. Do you realize how rare that is? 
How remarkable is that? She met each of our gazes again. One tear escaped her right eye, rolled down her cheek, but it disappeared into her radiant smile. The smile that, with everything in me, I couldn't understand could be so genuine and captivating in a time such as this. But as always, if anyone could, Bubbles could. No one could ever forget us. No one ever will. Just by existing, we've changed so many people's lives, touched so many of their hearts. And even after we're gone, that will never go away. Ever. Carefully, Bubbles sat again, right in front of me. She reached out to wipe a tear from my face, a tear that I hadn't even realized, was there. Then, she took both of my hands in hers and looked into my eyes. Don't you ever forget how important that is. She turned, facing the rest of our group. All of you. Never forget. She turned her eyes to Buttercup in particular, looking at her with such compassion that it physically tugged at my heartstrings. We could let this bring all of us closer together, or it could tear us all apart. We have the power to decide how this affects us. Frail, with a gaze that was shattered, Buttercup responded with a raw whisper, I have no power left. Bubble said, only because you're letting it win. Very slightly, she shook her head once, with a finality that said she would not be argued with. Don't let it. Shortly after Bubble's beautiful words of wisdom and faith, for all of us, all of us left the living room, retiring to our respective rooms and beds. We had decided to end our scary, uncertain, painfully honest group discussion on a somewhat hopeful, if maybe in some ways, childlike, note. It was for the best, we decided. Especially if any of us had wanted to get any rest at all that night. Or ever again. Some childlike innocence couldn't hurt us at this point, maybe it was the only way we could escape from the suffering for even just a little while. And just as well, Bubbles' words echoed in my mind as I lay in bed later that night. They had given me one last push, one last thin thread that would keep me hanging on. Not that we'd have any way of knowing if they would, but I hoped, hoped beyond hope, that her lovely words would prove true. That the city of Townsville would never forget us, just as she said. That this generation would raise children, and they would tell their children, and then their grandchildren, stories of the superheroes that had once flown the skies of Townsville, arresting thieves and destroying monsters and keeping the world safe. The heroes that they could always depend on the heroes that rarely let them down or let anything hurt them. The heroes they loved. Words. Can't, don't, gone. Brain. Shrink. Hands, paws, claws, hands, remember. Them. Fault. All. Pay. Deserve. They, why, me, instead. Destroy. Remember. 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 Cannot. Forget. Me. Must. Not. Forget. Who. Me. Am. Don't forget. Don't forget words. Don't forget to walk. Don't forget to run. Don't forget. Invent. Don't forget. Not. Not. Words. Gone. Me. Gone.